welcome to another episode of Ph Divas. I'm Zion Yao. This is Liz Wayne. Welcome back. Welcome back. And this is another episode where we're introducing one of us to the part of the audience that may have no idea who the hell one of us might be. Yes, I will no longer be the other woman to Zion. Yes. Well, I guess to some people I'm the other <laughs> woman regardless. Oh. So we That's another podcast. Yes. In this episode we will unveil the glory that is Elizabeth Wayne. <laughs> Sorry, you said glory. It makes me giggle. Glory makes me giggle. Yeah. So hopefully we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. I'm also proud to say that we are live from Philadelphia. Yes. (laughs) Um, Liz is here to reconnect with her alma mater. Yep. Penn. You Penn. Get it right. Get it right. I'm sorry. As a Canadian for a long time, I thought that Penn and U Penn, well, no, Penn State and U Penn were the same university. You and know, I did not, think I'm sorry, too. and I did not realize that Penn was a Ivy League. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I, I forgive you. I, I, I had to deal with this my whole undergrad. Actually, even now, sometimes people wouldn't understand. That was what would happen. When I first got into Penn and I'm Miss, Mississippi, and I'm talking to people, and they would say, why didn't you just go to the University of Mississippi? Why would you go all the way up north for <laughs> state school? And there's no way to say it's an Ivy League. Without Excuse sounding me. so elitist and yeah. stuck up. There's no way to say, like, this school is better than any school you've ever been to. Like, <laughs> we're Ivy, okay? We're number four in the nation. At the time, we were number four in the uh-huh. nation. And we're you remember rich, it. Bitches. You rich. remember it. Yes, I do, okay? My education costs a crap ton of money, and I'm not paying for any of it, you know? I wanted to brag so much, but there's no way you can really... You gotta take the high road when, yeah. when you're in, an, an elitist. Anyway, so Liz is here <laughs> to reconnect with Penn, and I'm here to do archival work at the Mutter Museum and the the library of the College Physician of Philadelphia, which is we'll talk about in another episode. Yeah, she's been reading about headaches, and I have been drinking, and uh, getting an alumni card at Penn, and just walking around and doing phone interviews, doing phone interviews for jobs. Yeah. So anyway, it's been great. Um, also, we're in Philadelphia, but we're also, like, in a hotel, so I'm not really sure how live this is right now. But, yeah, it's interesting. Something cool to say. So, Liz, how about we start the way that so many internet dating profiles seem to start nowadays, <laughs> which is to say, what is your Myers-Briggs type? Oh, good. I thought you were going to make me swipe left or right. <laughs> um, I, I am an INTP. Yes, I am an I- INTP. So, and what does that mean? I am an introvert, intuitive, thinking and perceptive person. And from what I remember, I was pretty much for the majority of them except for P, I was close to the middle range mm-hmm. when I, even for those. Recently, when I take it, I seem to be an E instead of a P, in sorry, an E an extrovert instead of an I, um, and people are really surprised when I show up as being an I. They mm-hmm. think I'm an E, and I don't think they realize sometimes I'm talking because I'm nervous, mm-hmm. or I'm just experimenting with them. Or they think that I people are shy when it's not quite, it doesn't quite like work like that. No, I'm a learn. I'm a practiced E, and again, I'm talking because I'm practicing, mm-hmm. and you're just listening to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a... That says a little bit about you to those of our listeners who are familiar with Myers-Briggs, which is basically kind of the, I guess, the more quantifiable 
equivalent of astrological symbols of our time. So who would be my dating? You, you said it's like a dating game. Who would be my dating equivalent? I, I don't know I enough. I really don't there's know. Like some... I'm sure we could look us up. I'm yeah, sure there's a thought online. catalog about this. So there's one thing I wanted <laughs> to ask you about. So you're from Mississippi. And as from someone true. from Toronto and probably speaking for people from a lot of other parts of the world, when we've learned about Mississippi in school, <laughs> we usually have just learned about it, A, in the context probably of the Deep South and slavery, or B, in the context of civil rights and all the horrific abuses that have happened then. And so I'm sure that like like there's been this sort of instinctual cringe that has been associated with the sound of this uh, name, which of course is very incredibly reductive and sort of reduces it onto this one-dimensional place of black suffering and obviously. So like, uh, how about you give us a little bit of insight into what Mississippi was like as a state in your experience um, and how it, Mississippi has influenced you? Because I'm sure it's much more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of glad you, you opened with that. I I liked stories. And um, the story I will tell you now is when I was going to grad school and doing interviews. I will not mention the school's name. But I'm talking to this faculty member at a reception, and and he asked me where I'm, he asked me where I'm from. I say Mississippi. He says, oh, yeah, I just saw Mississippi burning. And I can <laughs> tell you there's no real way to recover from that. We go, like, so, yeah, I was thinking that your department's really great, and I want to be a student here oh shit, I don't know how to come back from Mississippi burning. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to say. It's just the most awkward thing ever um, that the only thing that people know about your state is all the, the people you've killed and the, the things you've done to people historically. So that's hard. Except you're not exactly part of the you that you're there. Ye I Like as a Mississippian, yeah. but not as to be quite frank, a, a black Mississippian. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm thinking that that's, you're absolutely right. I'm, I, it's confusing as a Southerner to be a black Southerner. I think it's actually very confusing because you are black and you have that experience, but you are also still a Southerner. It's just like you love the things you hate. Mm -hmm. um, um, another story that I'll say is, one time I was talking about the South and I was kind of like droning on and on and eventually I actually defended the Confederacy. Huh. And, what? and it and wasn't, what? Um, okay. I won't say defended, but it was like this kind of like, yeah, you know, this is our history. This is where we went. This is what we did. And I literally, like I, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I thought, oh shit. Oh my God. You know, I'm, that's not good. I actually don't agree with those things because that place I would be a slave still mm -hmm. but um, to be in the south is to have both of those things right at your door mm -hmm. and dealing with those complexities I think or not dealing just literally keeping them at the door some people don't let it in you know mm -hmm. which is still on the side but those things are still there and so um, growing up the remnants of slavery and of Jim Crow laws and separation, segregation, I should say, mm -hmm. are very apparent. Yeah. So the old, as an example, the old high school was the old white school, and the elementary school was the old black school. And so you can still see the, the clash years. You know, they take pictures, and yeah. you can see how it was all black at a certain point. Or one school looks way better than the other school already. Um, 
you have a black prom queen and a white prom queen. I think most places are abolishing those lo- those roles, but when I was going through school, that was definitely the case that you had to explicitly have like a black prom queen and white prom queen, homecoming court, those type of things, football games. I'm, I'm not sure if they do mm-hmm. that kind of thing in Canada or there. Well, we don't really care about football teams. That's our thing. We don't really care about football. Of course you don't because you're just so high and mighty and it's beautiful. Um. <laughs> well, because I, I remember we were talking about segregation in the context of swimming pools not so oh, long yeah, ago with the infamous incident that happened where a police officer busted like basically like a pre-teens pool party mm-hmm. and knocked down that that one girl um yeah. and, and sat on her and i remember you talked a bit about how that made you think of like that was very much like the history of pools that you'd grown up in that that's true i um growing up i didn't do there's this unspoken code of what to do and what not to do and i knew what I could not do as a black person by myself or with a majority of black friends. But sometimes when I'm with my white friends on a daily basis, they would just, there's this property that had a beautiful lake. They would just cross the fence, go into these woods, go find their way to the creek and just swim in the creek. And I was really afraid of doing it when I was with them. And I don't think they understood why I was so afraid of doing it. But in my mind, I was thinking, I'm going to get shot or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to get arrested. This isn't legal. I'm going to get in trouble. But they did it with such calm and ease that it. I did it with them. And we didn't get in trouble, but but I was still afraid. So there are definitely rules and things that you can and cannot do. Not because they're actually written in stone, but because you see what the consequences are and you know kind of implicitly why that is the way it is. Um, in the hometown that I'm from, you can see where the white water fountain used to be and the black water fountain. Mm-hmm. You can see um, the communities are very distinct historically, and they kind of remain that way. There was uh, the white swimming pool, the black swimming pool. Typically, everyone likes to go to the white swimming pool, but the black one, only black people tend to go to that one. So in, in calling them those things, those calling them the white and the black whatever place it was is kind of common to me and I remember when I went to Penn for um, undergrad that it was really odd that people people responded to me in this really different way when I would say things like that and I had to learn how not to say those things because they sounded really racist to people and and so this is kind of a good intersection to talk about how the, the love-hate relationship, because mm-hmm. while those are things that were horrible and things that, they yes, they absolutely do sound atrocious, on the other hand, you could also argue that it's not necessarily fair to just say that Southern people are the only people who are racist. Yes, yes. Because in a way, at least I know where to go and where not to go. Mm-hmm. Like, at least we're talking about it. Um and people here are not talking about it, or they are, they're in completely different ways, and they try to negate the fact that they are just as racist. I don't think yes. the South is actually more racist than the North is. It's a different form, or perhaps acknowledge it's a different, different form. form. Or the way that perhaps in the sort of binaristic feel, uh, thinking in the U.S., the North tries to disavow its racism, racism by projecting it all on the South. Yeah, or its history of racism. Yeah. Like, so, uh, trying to pretend that, like, the, the North had slavery, too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, like you're saying, it's complicated. It's a place that I love. It's a place I love because there are people that I love that are there. Mm-hmm. And 
and it's a place that I don't know I just love those people those people grew up with me I understand those people um I know there's more than just race playing right now mm-hmm. so there's race but there's also poverty and um there's intersections all over the place and some of my best friends are white and some of my greatest mentors and people who were sponsors of my advancement were white and um so it becomes more difficult to say all white people are all to be kind of extreme about it. Mm-hmm. But it is true that a lot of bad things happened and continue to happen in Mississippi and in other southern states. So the way I try to deal with it is through acknowledgement. Um, but sometimes I do get a little defensive because, again, the South isn't the only place that's racist. Yeah. Like, and I grew up there, and I, I don't know. So it's, it's a complicated thing that I don't often always know how to defend or support. So this reminds um, for me, one of the def- initial defining moments of our acquaintance was when we were doing training together uh-huh. as graduate yeah, residents on West Campus. Yes, because <laughs> it was like um, we had just gotten to know each other as part of this team. We had to do all these team-building things with these other houses that maybe we weren't that thrilled about. Mm-hmm. And we had like their first attempt at doing type of diversity training, which I applaud that they're trying to do and they've been trying to improve it every year. Mm-hmm. But they tried to do this thing where they asked like, oh, so where is everyone from? And by I think they started moving it up by being like, oh, if you like, I don't know, jello step into the middle oh they try to start gentle yeah very gently like with different types of identifying of course knowing that's going to build up to Mm -hmm. gender sexuality race Mm -hmm. and what i liked is that um it was trying to do it in this like really well-intentioned but sort of toothless version of inclusivity um without Mm -hmm. sort of addressing politics or you know or history and you're the person who is like when uh, they're asking like so if you don't identify as black step into the ring and you're Mm -hmm. and you actually made the statement that like that yes I'm black and my ancestors were slaves and that's mm-hmm. how they came into this country yeah. and you could almost feel like this palpable discomfort really I think I, I, I think no palpable no, discomfort good. some, I, I some mean, a lot of people and I was like I am and I was like you saw people become uncomfortable well I could I felt like I could feel the vibe become uncomfortable and I was like She's awesome. I'm so glad <laughs> someone has brought this into this room. After some other people, um, some white people, well-intentioned white people were cluelessly saying, well, I'm really proud of my Irish heritage. I'm really proud of being, you know, yeah. um, X years European. And you were actually bringing it up. And I was like, I, th- I think we can get along. Well, also, I am proud. Yeah. I'm, I'm really proud. And it, it, I learned, as I got older, I learned more about my history. And I learned more about what slaves actually went through and how smart they were and I actually got to undo some of the damage and by damage I mean the stereotypes that are Mm -hmm. always that people say about black people um, understanding what race really is as a social construct and realizing that that didn't really have anything to do with my intellect or or actually the the current state of affairs for black people in America and then I thought about and finally decided that there's something to be proud of to be black Mm-hmm. Um, and my ancestors are, how do I describe myself? Am I truly African-American? No, I'm not. And I don't say that to be divisive per se. I mean, I understand that the statement is divisive because I'm saying I'm separate from something, but I learned the hard way through undergrad that I was not African-American. And I learned that from, from people who were African-American, that I was not African-American and 
I had to understand where what my heritage was and where I was coming from. And so now, um, the way I like to say it, to say I'm black, I am slave descended. Mm-hmm. That's where my ancestors come from. And I'm proud of them and I'm grateful in this weird way. It, and and it, I, I'm saying weird because it sounds weird to be like, thank you for going through slavery. Because clearly I would <laughs> okay. rather they had not. Yeah. But I would, if I were to think about what it might feel like to be a slave, wanting freedom, yeah. wanting something better for their children, then I'd like to hope that some of the slaves thought to get through the day, one day we're not going to be slaves, and one day like my child is going to be able to be a doctor or a lawyer or going to be at an Ivy League institution. And for that glimmer of hope there, mm-hmm. thinking about even my great, I think my great-great-grandmother would have been a slave. And my great-grandmother was, went through sharecropping. And so to think about that and to think about just living through your grandparents or your, your ancestors' dreams. I, I grew up, my family is very um, religious, and they're always talking about prayer. Prayer goes through everything. And if I'm on the phone with them, they're talking about praying. And, and I'm not sure how much credit I personally feel in it, but I feel like if people were praying for these type of things to happen, mm-hmm. and in a way I honor the fact that the, where I am right now is an embodiment of all the work that they wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for that. But isn't that an incredible burden to carry? Um, in the way that I'm phrasing it, no, uh-huh. because I'm doing something that I want to do. So my existence and my ability to, to be in the space that I am is to be a little bit more freer than the generation before me was. Mm-hmm. I think is not a, necessarily a burden. That particular aspect isn't a burden. But um, perhaps f- fulfilling that dream or I'm also having to be to held you, up as an example, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, I'm I'm 27 now, and I have to say that I'm speaking to you from a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And I've learned how to separate those things. Okay. But if I go back to high school, me, 18-year-old me, just starting college and having, I did feel like I was representing my whole race. I, I studied physics. I wanted to do physics. And people always told me that I wasn't going to be good or they didn't think black people could do those type of things and be in those spheres. And I was carrying a lot of burden mm-hmm. from that. How did you fall in love with physics or science in general? So, I'm naturally smart. <laughs> I love thinking. I was always really good at school. I, um, I was the kind of person where I would just laugh when I saw a multiple choice test because, of course, the, you know, I could use reason. I wouldn't even, I would do this thing where I just wouldn't study, but I would use, like, reasoning mm-hmm. to figure out that the other three answers weren't correct and this one's yeah. correct. And I would hold my paper, you know, for ten minutes. So that I, so it wouldn't be that obvious mm. that I just finished this in like a minute, kind of. That was the kind of smarts I was I was dealing with as a kid. And trying to and holding on for ten minutes so you wouldn't see, seem too, like you're awesome. But well, like, I didn't there's... make I didn't want to make everyone else feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> I didn't want them to change their tactic, right? Because if they realize, well, actually no, they probably wouldn't have changed it because 
for they won't change it for one student, but they would change it if everyone was doing it. That's true. Anyway, but so that this is the kind of thinking that I'm going through. Mm -hmm. So mind you, this is a lot of, I, w I would say for, for um for a little kid, that's a lot. It's pretty high level thinking. I loved reading. I was always so I was just good at school. And um, I became interested in physics in sixth grade. I was 11 years old, and we were doing this chapter on um, nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, and they introduced the concept of an atom. And that really struck me as being very cool because before it was like, learn the planets. Okay, there were nine of them. And actually, for people, this is, this is dating me because Pluto is no longer a planet. I thought it's disputed now. Once again, um, the last I checked with my astronomy friend, it was like, no, nah, it's not a planet. I guess so. But it's, it's more of those photos just. But got we'll released, keep but anyway. it up. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. And it, as it turns out, there's more than nine objects in the solar system anyway. Yeah. So this whole nine Sedna is body like concept one. doesn't make any sense anymore. The point is, is that I never heard of atoms before. I was trying to picture how I'm made of atoms. And it just really excited me, and I started to learn more about it. I started going to the library because they didn't have any more um, information in the textbook. I did my science fair project on it, and if it were post-2011, I might have scared people <laughs> because my project was about making, like, a fission reactor, mm. which is, I, first of all, I didn't make one. I can't, I don't have the money to make one, but I simulated one, and it was really cool, and I just fell in love with physics. I started reading about Einstein and discovery of modern physics, which led to the discovery of like all like the atoms and neutron, subatomic particles, and being able to understand the physical world was exciting, and being able to grasp concepts that I wasn't supposed to understand, I also found really thrilling. I was just going to bring up... Um you talking about the, the reactor stuff, it reminds me that about three, two or three years ago, there was mm -hmm. actually this high school girl who was black who was arrested and expelled for doing a science experiment oh, that really? ended up having explosive results. I don't even remember what the, but she basically she's prosecuted for an experiment um, that I think was even part of class or you know some sort of independent project. And it was clearly like absolutely absurd that she ended up receiving the punishment that she did. And I remember seeing a lot of internet outrage I don't even know what the resolution ended up being. Her name was Kira Wilmot, but yeah, doing science while black. <laughs> it's really sad. That's really Sorry, sad. I just wanted to bring that up as an example in case your listeners hadn't heard of it. Yeah. No, that's really distracting. Just that's that's um there are a lot of disparities. I have to say that my educational experience shaped who I am right now. Because my family moved around a lot. Mm -hmm. It was still within Mississippi, but um, I went to five different schools between kindergarten and K-12. And I went to an all, I went to a school that was on probation, and it was all black. What does on probation On mean? probation is you're failing all of the state-mandated requirements, and okay. everyone's failing. And it was really bad. It's, it's bad. That's like, you got an F from the state. Okay. And then after that, I went 25 miles east, and I went to the school that was mostly white, 
and doing extremely well in school and I got to see how I was treated differently and how much faster we got to learn we moved through textbooks much faster and it was just an interesting social environment to also grow up in because that, that was the first time I'd been in the classroom that had more white people in it and I have to admit I was a little afraid mm-hmm. because I I don't know it felt like a spectacle almost um and I was, yeah, it's so funny to, to say it out loud, but I, as a seven or eight-year-old who hadn't really been around a lot of white people, you know, all of a sudden these these bunch of girls came up to me and they were talking to me, and I can't help but, like, look at, like, their eyes, and, like, their, like, blue eyes and, like, really, really straight mm-hmm. hair, and their mom let them shave their legs, and my mom would let me shave my legs, and itty-bitty things like that that um that I noticed and was like oh my gosh what do I say right now what do I do um anyway after that I went to another school which is like 200 miles away and it was interesting because the book I had in fifth grade at my other school was the same book I had for sixth grade at this school and so basically I went back Mm -hmm. I I didn't get to learn as much and do Mm -hmm. and, and do as much and I at this point I decided I wanted to study physics, but they didn't have physics classes at this school, and they didn't have a lot of math classes, and that's when I applied to the math and science school in Mississippi, and I was fortunate enough to actually get in, and that's really where my whole world changed, and it was longer a question of, are you going to go to school? Are you going to go to college? This is what college you're going to get into, and being in that atmosphere changed my trajectory. I have a lot of, it, it, anyway, so the whole point is, being in all those different spheres, it really showed me how sometimes being in the right school and being pushed is helpful because I'm the same person, but I am being subjected to different academic expectations. And also, I can't go farther than the school has. So if you don't have that class, I can't take that class to pass it. And if I don't have those classes, I can't qualify to get into a good school and by yeah. good school there's plenty of good schools but for me I actually knew that I wanted to go to an Ivy it was like this dream it was a I'm where it was I had this mentality I don't know where it came from resilience call it but it was a where's the best school I'm gonna be there who's the smartest person I'm gonna be right there mm-hmm. I'm the smartest person I don't know what you guys think you are but I'm amazing in my head, like I was, yeah. I was my cheerleader, and I really thought that that I was smart. So to go to um, a point that you're sort of bringing up, but to put it in the the metaphor of that type of American dream, it's not just a, about pulling oneself up by, by one's bootstraps. It's also about like, at what places do you even get boots to begin with? What yeah. bootstraps do you get to then pull yourself up with? Right? Yeah. No, it, it was so apparent to me. And it's kind of why when I look back sometimes, um, I'm well aware that I hustled my way here and I worked very hard. And I actually put myself quite often in spheres where I had no support. And I just did it. Like, I I really had to be a little fearless. I had to have a lot of courage. Um, But I also understand that my raw intelligence, I knew a lot of smart people that just weren't thinking the way I was and they weren't, they weren't trying to sacrifice the way I was. And and that said, there were also people who, um, one thing I think about, some story, but when I got to Penn, 
I got to be around people who were already like exposed to things that I had to travel 200 miles away from my home. Like I went to boarding school, 11th grade and 12th grade of high school. And that's where I learned upper level calculus. And that's where I took all the physics classes and chemistry and bio that would even prepare me for Penn. And I had to leave home to do that. And there are people just right there that they just walked down the street and they got the same kind of education. Mm -hmm. And um, th I mean, that really struck me that they didn't have to work that hard to get the opportunity mm -hmm. to, to do it. And even then, I was still not as prepared because I didn't quite have the entitlement. I didn't have, um, I didn't have the, um, I didn't understand the environment that I was going into. Mm -hmm. So it made things a little bit harder. It's like, instead of just focusing on your education, you also have to focus on the adapting. Yeah, the culture, the, the persona. Culture. And it's, I have to say, unfortunately, that's something you can't teach someone. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, so I was told this before. But again, like my whole, I'm smart, I can do it, whatever, who cares? That's, that was great. I think that's what got me through it. That's what, what helped me survive. But it didn't prepare me, and there was no way to fully understand what I was getting into or what I actually needed. And I think I started to understand that concept, like, maybe at the end of my pen career. Mm -hmm. And I, I've seen now that a lot of elite institutions in the U.S. are now trying to foster unions that don't just um, help to support students from from just um, backgrounds based on race, but also specifically class, that now there's yes. unions for first-generation students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's, I'm actually happy to see that because what I know, um, I've made a lot of friends, and I somehow have this knack for attracting people. Um, <laughs> I have this knack for getting the best, the juiciest secrets out of people. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, you're warned, everyone, if you ever meet Liz. I'm very warm. I don't know. It's sort of like, people are like, I'm like, hey, Liz. I'm like, well, the, no, I'm not saying hi to myself, but I say, hi, my name is Liz. People say, my name is Scott, and um, I peed the bed when I was three or something. Like, that's kind of the, how the conversation. That's so funny, given that the one Scott that we know in common. I know. I was not I don't gonna... think he's think that, I don't think that our house dean and my name is very Jim. esteemed. My, my name is professor. like, my name is something random. The point is, is I get all the details, and the point of me saying that is that I've met a lot of people through this experience who don't look like the typical, um, they don't look like they have problems and they do. And it helped me have more courage because I have this, because I have this very open way of dealing with my struggles, um, I got to see people who didn't have open ways of dealing with their struggle and it helped me realize the only difference between me and the person walking down the street from me is that I'm talking about it. Um, it helped me realize that these people who I think are so great, not that they aren't great, but it doesn't mean they're perfect. There's mm -hmm. always something that someone's struggling with and someone's perspective that they're going through something. So what's interesting, Liz, from what you've been talking about so far, and getting two strains that might seem sort of paradoxical. On the one hand, your incredible courage and self-confidence, but on the other hand, also your willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah. yeah which some I'm, people might see as a contradiction. 
This is true. I shrug- I don't struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I kind of make an active choice to do that. And the key word is active. I mean, that's really where I get the strength from. Sometimes vulnerability looks like someone is weak. It looks like they are defenseless. But for me, I get to choose who I tell, when mm-hmm. I tell, and where I tell it. And there's power in that for me. There might be something that my dad used to, well, still sometimes likes to say. Still likes to say, which is that um, and so you develop your weaknesses and strengths, but eventually your weakness becomes your strength and your strength becomes your weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Also, it's only coincidentally that this seems to make any sense at all because my dad likes to say a lot of things. <laughs> Well, it makes sense because I use vulnerability so much Mm -hmm. that um, sometimes I think I make myself too vulnerable Mm -hmm. when I really need to keep my damn mouth closed. (laughs) But I like it. I think it's a strength. I, um, when I'm scared, my nerve, I'm more likely to say I'm scared because Mm -hmm. once I say I'm scared, it's like, oh, well, glad that's out the door. And then I just do what I have to do. And then it's over. Um, but sometimes, back to the, I think we were talking about how it can be a double-edged sword. Sometimes people don't rec- recognize that I'm doing this actively, and mm-hmm. they almost think that, oh, she needs help. She's really scared. Let me help her. And it's like, no, I got it, actually. Uh, it's almost a strength that you're able to expose that, right? I work so hard to communicate that some people don't realize I'm actually telling them what I need. Mm-hmm. Like, if I were going to... If I, if I need help, I'm going to tell you I need help. Because I try very hard to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to say, one of the things I associate with, with Liz is not just her general badassery, but also her fabulousness. And one example is that I was, I was in an airport going through the duty-free, and I saw a stand of Hermes perfume. And now <laughs> I, I associate Liz with Hermes perfume. Yes. Liz, do you want to talk about that a little bit? I thought it might be bring out another facet of yourself for our listeners i like perfumes that's my new that's my splurge and this is also zine's fault because don't go shopping with zine zine knows everything about everything she's a walking dictionary but she's also walking internet so you don't have to google anything just ask that including the bad parts and yeah especially (laughs) the bad parts so she's actually telling me the history of hermes and i really like the idea um of having a unique scent, a unique thing that can be replicated. This person, Hermes, they have only one perfection. Yeah, yeah they, they're the, one of the few, I think they're the only house right now that has their in-house in perfumier. Everyone else uses, there's like about half a dozen so-called noses in the world that work for every company. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. And I got um, these perfumes. Part of the Jardin series, Garden yes. series. I like the Garden series a lot. I also like perfumes because they they allow you to be um, to ex- have an expression, but it, it totally doesn't depend on what you look like or what you wear. Mm-hmm. So you know, if I if I wanted to dress really chic and if I wanted to be like really modern looking, um, sometimes I can't do that because you know I'm in my my fatty phase. I want to <laughs> wear like my my pants, like my um, jogging pants or something. And perfume just doesn't. It doesn't matter what you wear, what size you are. You can just wear it. It's very universal. You can go shopping. It doesn't matter how you feel that day. Mm -hmm. You can just check out whatever you want. And I really like that about perfumes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's perhaps an aspect of perfume that reminds me of you that there's 
perfume is a real science in terms of putting together. It's all about these molecules and different, mm-hmm. different proportions. But there's still like this aspect of magic that you don't know how it's going to react on your body. You actually don't know. You don't know how it's going to unfold on you. There is something that's left up to chance. And there's like you, like you're this very driven person who knew what you wanted for a very long time. But it's not like you're only that. Like you have all these unexpected aspects about you. No. Actually, that's a that's a good point about the the driven, but also the chance. It sounds contradictory. Um, so when I say that I'm driven, this is what I've always known I've wanted. That's true and also not true. So I I know what I want, but it also but what I want also changes. And for me, it's okay to change. Like I'm so okay with change that if tomorrow I discovered that there's something else I want to do in my life. I wouldn't really truly freak out about it. I'd be okay with that. And um, and I think sometimes when I change that quickly, people around me don't always understand what I'm doing. And that, that's actually something communication-wise that I have to work on because I have to. I do have to bring the people around me up to speed. But there will mm-hmm. be days where I'm like, okay, I'm on this now. And they're like, what? No, no, I thought we were on this. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that was last week. But then I had this conversation, and I did this, and I spoke with this person, and I read these books, and you know what? This feels good, and I'm going to do it. I try to be very focused on how I feel and what I want and what the universe, what I want to do. And that's how Liz became the PhD that she is today. <laughs> so perhaps um, something good to close on would be talk about just what your dissertation is, or perhaps you could say <laughs> PH dissertation. My PH dissertation. Oh, we'll see what I did there. I... I appreciate what she did there. Research. Dear God, I am a PhD candidate soon to defend. I will be a doctor very soon, but that's another podcast. Um, In biomedical engineering, I study how the immune system responds to circulating tumor cells in cancer metastasis. Okay, soak that in. Okay. And there's a particular phrase that her work has been associated with <laughs> that has been popularized by no less than the BBC. <laughs> Would you like to say what that phrase is, Liz? <laughs> Sticky balls. <laughs> Sticky balls. Associate that with Liz. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. As Google Google it. Actually, Google it. It shows up. It shows up when you Google it. So, story time again. The mol- I, I have, So, I have several projects that involve circulating tumor cells. This particular one is therapeutically driven. So there is a nanoparticle that has a sticky component called e-selectin. And on this nanoparticle is e-selectin and also the drug, which is called TRAIL, which kills tumor cells but does not kill normal cells. And so if you put this drug in your bloodstream, it'll actually bind to leukocytes, which will then have more interaction with with the tumor cells in circulation and kill tumor cells. This is important because most people who die from metastasis die from the spread of pan- the spread of cancer, and um, not the primary tumor. So think about um, someone you may know or or have experience with where the tumor um, were spread to other parts of the body. Maybe it was in the prostate or the breast, and then it goes to lung or the or bone or brain. So I the research that I'm interested in is trying to stop the spread of metastasis. And this drug was really effective at doing that. And so when we published this research, we got a lot of publication. Oh, yeah, a lot of uh, publicity. Over 800 publications all over the world talking about this. 
and BBC picked it up and um, what usually <laughs> BBC picked it up and then the guy says sticky balls cure cancer is how he described my research so I took about maybe a minute or two to explain what this happens what this drug does and and other reports you know like if you read the scientific paper you'll see that it killed like 90% in this period of time and 60% in this lung and maybe this works in a mouse model and blah, 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 blah. And then BBC says sticky balls cure cancer. The funny thing about it is I work with a lot of men. Uh, so I'm actually the only female author on this manuscript. And there's nothing like telling a man that his sticky balls could save the world. I'm like, sure they, they feel just, so proud. It probably yeah. doesn't help their hygiene either. <laughs> Anyway. Oh my god, I'm going to be thinking about that for months. Um, but yeah, it, sticky balls cure cancer. And I like that because it's a great way to communicate science to people. So it's not, I, would, I cringe when I think about it because it's not completely accurate. But if it gets people to read about it and look it up, it's really great. Yeah, so I think that science communication will definitely be a theme in some upcoming podcasts. But practice is a good place to end it. Thanks so much for listening. This is Zanya. And this is Liz, bearing her soul to everyone who wants to hear. Yes. Live from Philly, <laughs> signing off. Thanks for listening. Get us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Ditto what she said. Bye. <laughs>